Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. I was 25 years old and I was making four to six million dollars a year and I was guaranteeing these hundred million dollar poker games for super famous, super rich, super powerful people and got in over my head and ended up getting arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents, machine guns, the whole thing. The Fed seized all my assets. Overnight, I was completely broke and looking at 10 years in prison thrown into a Russian mob indictment with people that I'd never even heard of. I found myself 35 years old, millions of dollars in debt, a complete wreck of a human being, and really had to figure out how to repair a life. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. As you just heard, our guest today has had a pretty extraordinary life. Her name is Molly Bloom, and if you didn't know her story was true, you might think it was the plot of a movie. And as it happens, it is the plot of a movie. I'm Molly Bloom. Do you know about me? I read your indictment after I got your call last night, and I brought your book. Do you understand that you are charged with operating an illegal gambling business? It's called Molly's Game, and it's based on Molly's memoir of the same name. We'll get into the details of what happened to her in a bit, but first, I wanted to talk to Molly about what it was like having her life turned into an entertainment product. After all, it's an experience we have in common, and it's not one I share with too many people. You know, in the beginning, I was very powerless over it. The poker games were populated by some extraordinarily famous people. And so when everything blew up, the tabloids were really interested in it. And then they started telling my story in this very reductive way about this girl in, you know, a tight skirt that was serving drinks at a poker game, called me like the madam of poker, et cetera. And we're basically narrating my life as they saw would sell magazines headlines. On top of everything else that was going on in my life, that was a terrible feeling. And then also after I got federally indicted to have discovery, which is all the information that the government digs up on you and have that leaked, you know, it's all extremely intrusive and your private pain is not your private pain at all anymore. And it's one of the reasons why I decided that I needed to tell my own story Hmm. um, and take control back of that narrative, or at least be able to tell my side. Right. But then also in a way, it was a bit liberating because I think that I had spent so much of my life so overly concerned with how I appeared and what people thought of me. And Really, in the end, it it was such a sick obsession, needing to feel special or needing to be thought of in a certain way that I think it's part of why I stayed in that world as long as I did, because I didn't know who I would be without that quote unquote status, without the money I was making. You know, it was why I chased sports so hard, you know, and and it was why I was willing to put myself in unsafe places Mm. and unhealthy places time and time again. And so in a way, having the tabloids tell your story, losing control of those optics was certainly extremely liberating. So when I 
found myself millions of dollars in debt, a convicted felon, social pariah, tabloid fodder, and addicted to pills and alcohol. I didn't know how I was going to come back from that. I feel ashamed and humiliated. There's no way forward. I couldn't stay in that place. And what I decided on as the way out was there's a unique story here. And maybe, just maybe, if I can tell it in the right way and option my life, right, it's like I can start to address this huge mess in my life. Yeah. And it was challenging to get a movie made. I was up against a lot of obstacles. There were so many powerful people that played in these games, billionaires, politicians, celebrities that were trying to prevent this movie from getting made, even though no one had any interest in naming names or telling stories that were going to harm anyone. And then a lot of people that I met with, big, important people who could have definitely done it, wanted to do it in a way that I didn't feel was authentic Hmm. and wanted to reach for that low-hanging fruit and make it really like, I don't know, vapid and flashy and sexy and whatever. I met with a lot of people who were super talented artists, but I did not believe in the quality of their character. And I remember my brother saying to me, Molly, you can't keep passing on these opportunities. Like you live with mom and grandma. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I said, this is just too important to screw up. And, you know, I had the short list of people that I thought could tell the story in a way that was honest and authentic, but also had some humanity to it. At the top of that list was Aaron Sorkin. He had always been my favorite writer. I just love how he writes. And so it was my intention to try to get to him. That was not easy, but I finally got a meeting with him. And then we started working together. And unfortunately for Aaron, fortunately for me, I was his only source material. So (laughs) (laughs) for eight months, we worked together pretty closely. You know, it was a big exercise in surrender because Mm. once Aaron signed on to the project, I had to let it go. I had to get into some level of trust. Hmm. And I think you know this, and anyone who's gone through anything extraordinarily difficult knows this. When you survive it, you sort of have new eyes for the world. Like, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to be okay. Hmm. You know, I can survive this. But it was my only idea for a comeback, for a new life. And so my most important choice and the best choice I made was to collaborate with someone who I trusted them, not only as an artist, but deeply, I trusted his character. Hmm. And so I just had to keep saying to myself, you got to just let go. Hmm. And what happens will happen. And so when I sat down to see that movie, which by the way, was with 2000 people at the Toronto Film Festival, I chose not to see it before. I felt so honored by the story that Aaron told. Hmm. I really did. There wasn't a moment where I thought to myself that parts like sucked or was dishonest. I mean, I'm not going to tell you it was always easy to watch. Hmm. You know, there were the hardest parts of my life there being played out in a movie. But I do not believe that there was a single moment in that movie that I didn't feel like was true, authentic or honorable to the story. One thing that's interesting is a lot of people who find themselves in these situations often are approached by people who are like, hey, I want to turn your life into a story. But you knew that you had a story inside of you before you approached 
these people. And Mm -hmm. you sought out a storyteller who could facilitate this story that you had inside of you. How much of that did you know in your heart you knew how to tell that story? And how much of that did you discover in the process of working with Aaron Sorkin? I absolutely think that that is an evolving process. When I sat down to write my book, the last thing I wanted to do in the entire world was walk back into that pain, to that embarrassment, to that life that I felt at the time was completely ripped away from me and and also from all my own mistakes, you know? But it was my only way out. And the only thing scarier to me than going back there was staying in the place I was in, that place of ruination. So when I sat down to write the book, and I think anybody who ever sits down to write an idea in their head, the idea seems pretty clear until you try to put it to paper, (laughs) you know? And then that's the real litmus test. And I felt so stuck for so long, thought I knew my story, but didn't know how to really tell it. And the only way that I got through that was to continue showing up at that computer every day and writing it out and Mm. writing my way into clarity. And if I were to sit down and write that book today, it would be a lot different. Right after it, I was still caught up in the glitz and the glam of it all. And I still worshipped some of the more shallow parts of it. In some ways, I feel like I wrote a really safe book. Hmm. I told the story of the gambling world, you know, and my experience as a young girl going up against a billionaire boys club and whatever, but I didn't get into the guts of it. Hmm. You know, I didn't talk about addiction. Hmm. I didn't talk about why I was so compelled to chase this thing down this rabbit hole, even when it got dangerous. I brushed on the surface of it. And the truth is, is I, I guess I just didn't know, but I feel like in a way I told it, I think it's a good story and I think it's entertaining, but I don't think it's important. Hmm. The place that I am right now is much different than the place I was back then. After I got sober, after I lost everything, after I dealt with the shame and humiliation of being exiled from my social group, etc., there was a lot more depth that came to me. We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinths Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. Before we talk to Molly about why she did what she did, we have to back up. We still haven't explained what happened exactly. So let's get into it. This time, we'll begin at the beginning. I grew up in this really high-achieving family. My youngest brother is an Olympian, played in the NFL. I think he was like an Abercrombie model at some point, so he was even the pretty one. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) 
Um, Just throw that in there. Yeah. Don't, don't mind that. Yeah. yeah. And then my middle brother, Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon, and really grew up with a dad who, when he approved of you, the sun shone on you. And mm. God, I just really wanted a seat at that table. Mm. And I thought I would do it through school and sports. And the fact of the matter is I wasn't as smart as my middle brother. And I certainly wasn't as talented as my youngest brother, but I worked really, really hard. Hmm. I just developed this really gritty mindset and work ethic. And even though I had this crazy spinal reconstruction surgery and was told I would never ski again, I still went on to make the US ski team. And then it didn't work out for me, even though I had put everything into it. I crashed at the Olympic qualifiers and, and that was that. So I decided I was going to take a year off and go to Los Angeles before law school. And I ended up waitressing at these high stakes poker games and found the whole experience incredibly compelling because these games were populated by some of the most prolific people in the world and some of the richest and some of the most powerful. And I just thought this is an incredible adventure and a really cool opportunity to build a network. And so that's how it all started. As simple as that. And, and I had no idea how much that would completely alter the course of my life. And so I started running these games and I got better at it and they got bigger and I got more reckless and they got more dangerous. Though her games had started legally, Molly eventually started taking a percentage of the winnings for herself, which is called a rake. Taking a rake without a gambling license is illegal. Molly was making millions of dollars and handling enormous sums that were passing between players at her games. In the end, it all came crashing down in an FBI raid. Molly was arrested and all her money was seized. The prosecutors really wanted me to cooperate. They wanted information on the billionaires and the politicians and the celebrities. And I had to make the choice whether I wanted to do that or not. And I decided not to. Oh, wow. I pled guilty to the charges and I waited to get sentenced and I got super lucky. I didn't have to go to jail, but I found myself a complete wreck of a human being and really had to figure out how to repair a life. And I'm sitting here thinking about your story and I can't even imagine because everybody in the world knew your name and your story. And I had a small version of it and it is so overwhelming. And I just, I can't even get over the strength that it must have taken for you to <laughs> walk through that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's interesting. I was talking earlier today about certain challenges that we face in our lives and some of the challenges are of our own making. Some of them are ones that are just thrust upon us. They come in all shapes and sizes. And the outcome is one or the other. I, either you survive or you don't. And right. you'd be surprised what the common everyday, just your neighbor across the street kind of person is capable of when challenged, either intentionally or unintentionally. And mm -hmm. I think that's the silver lining to really challenging experiences is you do find out what you're made of. No question. And one of the things that I also noticed that you said that deeply resonates with me is once a story is out there, do you respond to that story? Do you create a whole new story? And if you have a story inside you, how do you discover how to tell it the right way. When I wrote my memoir, I basically wrote it as soon as I got home. And Did you really? 
I mean, yeah, I, I went to school for like three months and then I started working on it. And it was like that pressure to respond yeah. to the narrative that already exists out there, which in my case was depraved mm -hmm. sex manipulator, <laughs> foxy noxy lady, weirdly acquitted. Did she or didn't she? That's the story. That was the thing that described my experience. And I felt compelled to respond to at least give my side of the story. And I think that the sort of trap that I fell into, and I wonder if you feel this way about yourself as well, is the feeling that I needed to respond to their narrative instead of creating my own narrative. Interesting. And over the years, I've really come to a realization that, yes, I'm glad that I responded to that narrative. But like, if I think about what my story truly is. It's not me explaining the trial from my perspective. It's my experience of surviving an incredibly overwhelming circumstance. And much of that time was not spent in court. My experience mostly was in prison and then coming home and trying to rebuild my life after it had been completely destroyed. Well, I just think that you have an incredibly fascinating story. And I think what is really deeply interesting to me is how you survived it, mm. you know, mm. because it's one thing to put the external pieces of your life back together, mm -hmm. to write a book, to come back to the U.S., to go back to school, whatever it is, but it's putting together the inside mm -hmm. because the psyche is fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Human beings are pretty fragile and something like that that you went through at such a young age, I can't even imagine how that seeks to change you. Well, it seeks to define you is the problem. Like this right. huge thing seeks to define you. And when you're so young and you haven't even fully developed as a human being yet, how do you have authorship over your own identity and your own life when something seeks to take it over in such a big way? That's been the challenge. That to me is fascinating. And you've done such a good job of it. And I just wonder how you did it. <laughs> that's a, you know, it's a great question. Yeah. The thing that I've discovered very recently is I thought that I was very alone on this journey of not just like rehabilitating, but regaining a sense of ownership and authorship over my own life after feeling like it was absolutely defined by things that were not just outside of my control, but honestly had nothing to do with me. And it has been a long process of learning that has involved a lot of bumps in the road. And not just you have asked me that question, like, how do you do that? And I think the biggest thing is I think, well, look, we're all living a story, right? This is our story. Your life is a story. You get from A to B, mm -hmm. and that's your life. And for a lot of people, they feel like their story is being told by someone else and that they are the victim in someone else's story or they are the villain in someone else's story. If you feel like you're trapped in your own life, very often it is because you feel like you are trapped in someone else's story and that you have not been able to think of yourself as someone who has agency and who has the ability to do things in your own life that will define you as much as someone else's story about you. And that is something that I have felt very, very deeply because in a real realistic way, is there anything I could possibly ever do that's going to define me more than this horrific scandal that I had nothing to do with, I was just thrown into the center of? 
I'd have to do something quite extraordinary for people to forget <laughs> that I was accused of murder and in an international media scandal. I'd have to like cure cancer and go to the moon, like something like that. I'd have to I'd have to cure cancer on the moon. Yes, like, you on know, the like, moon. It, it would have to be nuts. And so instead of thinking like, oh my god, here I am trapped in the story where I'm somebody's hero and I'm somebody else's villain, and none of it feels authentic to me because none of it has anything to do with me. Instead, I was like, you know what? I need to stop having their conversation. I need to stop thinking mm. about myself in the context of someone else's story. And I need to think, what is it that I can do that's not reactive to my situation? What is it that I can mm. do that would only exist because I made it happen? Wow. And that is how you finally, finally do something that defines you more than something in the past. There are these stories that we tell ourselves that lead mm -hmm. us astray. And I think one of them is the idea of living the good life and what does that look like? Yeah. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk about what was the idea of living the good life that you encountered and what have you discovered in your own process of defining for yourself what living the good life means? Yeah, I love this question. Um, grew up in a small town in Colorado. I was like, I want a big life. I want to get out of here. I want to go see like what these people that have this big, extraordinary life are experiencing. And that was part of that poker game. Mm. These people had more money than God and they made decisions that actually moved the needle on the world stage. And I started to revere that. And what I found is that most of those people are miserable. I became miserable because when you put yourself on that pleasure seeking, merry-go-round where all you're doing is pursuing pleasure and that's your definition of happiness the next trip the next bag you buy the next shoes the next whale you score being on a yacht and being on a plane like you are chasing so hard all the time to get that next hit of dopamine or that next hit of pleasure and those people and myself for the most part were never ever content mm. There was no level of peace or contentment. There was just got to get the next thing. It was like a drug. And there was also this inability to think about anyone other than themselves. Hmm. This like complete self-centered way of being in the world. And man, if you want to get miserable, just sit around and think about yourself all day long. <laughs> 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 like that is a surefire formula to get miserable. That's just not how we're designed as human beings to thrive. Hmm. We're supposed to be community creatures and social creatures. And I think the evolution of life is to get more and more outside of yourself and you know, have a kid and that'll help. But you get used to the money and the privilege and the access and the trips and everything. And then you're left with who you are. Hmm. You know, you're left with who you are. And if you can't start to learn how to find gratitude in the small moments to find joy in the small moments, to live in the moments that aren't exploding with adrenaline and with 
pleasure and whatever, like you're going to be a miserable person. And I found that over and over again. And I experienced that firsthand. And in a way that's super liberating. You don't have to make all these choices that you have to make when you want to live that life. Hmm. The sacrifices, the compromises, you know? Yeah. One person I've talked to before was telling me about how they talk about like the gilded cage and how there's a certain kind of glamour to certain kinds of lifestyles. And you see even just stories about people who are living the perfect life. And yet it can also feel like you're just walking on someone else's treadmill. Yeah. So once you step off that treadmill, how do you know what direction to go? Like what direction did you go and how did you find the way out? I don't think that there's a clear path. The way that I found my way out was I went to a 12-step group because I had a problem with substances. Mm. And there's a lot of instruction in a 12-step group how to rewire your mind to become a person that can find gratitude, can get outside of that self-centered way of being. And so for me, that was my path. And I think that there's a lot to be learned in those rooms, most of it's not about drugs and alcohol. Most of it's about managing the human condition. Hmm. And so I distill a lot of what I learned in those rooms into this next book and sort of package it in a way that somebody who doesn't necessarily have a problem with substances can absorb. You know, it was interesting because I got sober after my whole life blew up kind of because I had to, because hmm. I no longer had money and I needed people to think that I was making a fresh start to invest in me, like my family. And I stayed sober for a while, but then I went back to using substances because I'd never dealt with what was really going on inside. And then I remember the movie was about to come out and I was not well, you hmm. know? And here I was, I'd put my life back together. I just got the wire from the studio. I had money again. Aaron Sorkin, the highest paid screenwriter in the world, just wrote the movie of my life. And I said to myself in that moment, if this doesn't fix you inside, there ain't a damn thing that will. There's literally nothing that will that's external. And so that led me to get sober again, this time for real, and to start doing that inner work that everyone talks about in like such a sort of dubious like you know way that's not clear and and to me it's looking at how you exist in the world looking at what hurts you looking at where your dysfunction is and starting to do real work on that hmm. another thing that i attribute finding this peace and this well-being to is meditation and meditation's such an interesting practice because it gets packaged and marketed as this very like spiritual practice or something that just like brings you calm. But if you look at the hard science behind it, you can actually start to transform your brain and make the amygdala or the fear center less active and enlarge the gray matter and the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that can rationalize and problem solve. It helped me to overcome my mind. Hmm. And I really believe that most humans walking around on this planet need a way to be able to overcome their mind. The unedited mind is a real pain in the butt to try to deal with. And so in meditation every day, you are asked to look at what's going on in your head. And it's generally like worry, anxiety, fear, comparison, all these things that are just running through your mind. But there's a part of your consciousness that can observe this and you can redirect the focus to something else somewhere else. 
whether it's the present moment or the breath or something more productive. And so learning how to do that has been gigantic Hmm. in my life because I would become aware of this pleasure-seeking machine that was like, want drinks, want money, want vacation, (laughs) want unhealthy relationships, like whatever it was driving me towards, I could observe that and let it pass. And then over time, that really restructured how I existed in the world Mm -hmm. and how I found peace. So I think meditation is also just such a profound practice and such a way to gain power over your own mind. Yeah. I've also found a lot of use in meditation. I've noticed that you get out of feeling like your thoughts are controlling you and that you control your thoughts. Like you can just take just one step back and be like, hey, you crazy thoughts that are just like, (laughs) what do I have to do next? Oh, my God, what do I have to do next? Like, it's amazing Mm -hmm. how frantic we truly are if we actually listen to our thoughts Mm -hmm. and just go, chill. You are not controlling me. I am controlling you. I have a purpose Mm -hmm. behind whatever it is that you're feeling frantic about. Like, let's focus. Yeah. How long have you been meditating? I started at the beginning of the pandemic. Did you? Yeah. Every day since the pandemic started. And it's been life changing. What was your process of handling the trauma? For me, what I found was I have been harboring a lot of anger that expresses itself in surprising indirect ways when I don't have control over it. So something that Amanda before everything would have been slightly irritated about becomes something that I'm actually quite angry about because it has resonance. And looking at it and seeing it happen in my brain and seeing how it's resonating outwards allows me to sort of shrink it back down to it's like, no, it's just a drop in the water. It's not this ocean wave that's about to hit me. It's okay. (laughs) You know, like we can also just approach these things with calm and with the amount of energy necessary, not putting too much energy into overcorrecting something that isn't actually that big of a deal. Another thing for me, and I found this to be super helpful, I I actually figured out how to do this in prison without any direction of any kind. But I remember when I felt completely overwhelmed in prison, what I would do is I would have a conversation with my younger self. I would actually imagine a younger version of myself who was not going through the experience I was going through, but would in the future. And I sort of big sistered her through the situation. I'd be like, here's how you're going to get through this. You're going to survive this. Like, trust me, I've been there. (laughs) And that's how I would figure out how to get through it. In a way, it's like taking something that's on top of you and removing it from your own shoulders and putting it in front of you so you can look at it from a different angle. That's fascinating. Did you just intuitively come up with that coping strategy? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's a good one. I got lucky. I mean, I just did what I I was. I'm a big sister. I have three younger sisters. And so it just felt like, well, what would I do if this was my little sister? OK, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. When Molly wrote her memoir, she was still processing events that she'd very recently lived through. These days, she sees her life story a little differently than she did at the time. I kept journals as a young kid, religiously. They were all at my mom's house and she brought them over recently. And I'm reading these journals from a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl. And I saw that as a young girl, I was like so confident and had so much 
zest for life and wanted adventure. And I thought about science and the universe. And, you know, I was curious about everything. And then I saw in my journaling, this marked change around like 13, 14 years old. And I became so focused on who's mad at me? Are my friends mad at me? What boy likes me? How do I look? I hate the way I look. This like just self-loathing came onto me and it never left Hmm. until I was 39 years old and got sober and started to do that inner work. And I remember not being alone feeling like that. And this thing that happens to a lot of, I'll say people, but I know for sure a lot, a lot of young girls where they become more conscious of their place in the world and how tough that can be, et cetera. And instead of learning how to address that, I just started searching for validation externally Hmm. for success for medals, later on for money, trying to like make myself look a certain way and just like a slave to the attention I would get from the guy that I liked and and just really not having a lot of internal power. Hmm. And that left me very vulnerable to some pretty toxic, unhealthy and ultimately dangerous situations. And my second book is about this journey that I've been on to find inner power and to stop being a slave to the external validation and looking at the reasons that you deeply pathologically feel like you need to be a people pleaser. And that evolution, which definitely started with my life falling apart, but was, I think I really got into it this last time with sobriety and meditation and doing this type of work. And so, you know, I think just instead of just telling my story, telling our story, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a young girl and feel powerless in the world those types of things. If I could rewrite my book, that's what I would write. Molly's got a second book coming out next year called Powerful and a podcast called Torched. I love sports. It's my first love. And I love that everything is on the line and the guts and the glory and the heartbreak. It just, it runs you through the gamut of human emotions at such a high level. And, you know, in some ways I spent my life after sports chasing that volatility and that, that aliveness. I also love looking in a non-judgmental way at the human condition. The movie Molly's Game is available on Netflix, and you can find Torched wherever you listen to podcasts. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And if you feel like taking a gamble, why not go all in on a five-star Labyrinth review? This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, along with Sophia Gates, and theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Captain's Log, stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. 